Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their own staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to get your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool autumn day in the capital is Carlene Jackson. Carlene is the CEO of Brighton-based tech company Cloud9 Insight, a Microsoft Gold partner which has provided more than 700 UK businesses with cloud-based CRM software systems. Founded in 2010, Cloud9 employs 30 staff to date and is an award-winning apprenticeship provider. Carlene has also recently set up another business in the shape of apprenticeship provider Vantage Academy, which is focused on developing tech talent for all industries. Uh, Carlene, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Scott, great to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally, we dive straight into the subject of leadership on the show and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and your businesses? Well, in our business, we work with SME businesses as a whole. And so we've definitely seen um, different industries have been more affected, uh, for example, hospitality and leisure. Um, But we work a lot with other sectors which have been less affected as well. So because we have a a broad spectrum of clients we work with, the impact to our business has been um, low. But at the same time, technology, I think, has played a really important role for helping organizations to mobilize their workforce when working at home, to innovate their businesses and come up with new ways of working. So, in fact, there's actually been an increased demand for the services that we offer in, in helping organizations with cloud-based sales and marketing services. So, uh, if, if anything, yes, of course, it was an initial shock, but actually it's never been busier for us. Um, but at the same time, we're very sensitive to it. It seems to be some industries have definitely been more impacted, which we're looking to try and support as much as we can. And do you think that with sort of a COVID-19 hangover looking likely to be looming large over some industries and consumer confidence taking a while to come back, perhaps, that reliance on technology is going to be like something that persists in the future because we're starting to hear more whispers of working practices changing, more people working from home more days in the week than perhaps venturing into the office. So that need for technological solutions is probably going to be there for quite some time. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing is that trends that were already happening in the marketplace have picked up. So things like the demand for flexible working um, and using technology to modernize the workplace, that's definitely picked up at an incredible place. And one of the industries that's often been slow to innovate is education, for example, and look at schools, um, how they're doing homeschooling now. It's just incredible to see the pace of change has been phenomenal. And I'm very impressed by organizations who've been quick to adopt technology. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine, for example, he um, runs a, a meat manufacturing business and, and overnight he suddenly set up an e-commerce business. Uh, so I think that's going to be a, an increasing trend as well, sort of where the supply chain um, has is going to be 
you could say, disrupted and change uh, enabled by technology as people become perhaps potentially more aware of how technology can support businesses and reaching uh, customers or changing how they innovate their products and services. And there is a digital skills gap in the UK workforce at the moment, isn't there? And given that the industry is going to be a dominant force in the future, upskilling the current UK workforce to be able to work in the sector is also going to be incredibly important. So when it comes to what Vantage is offering at the moment, that's certainly probably going to see a surge in demand in future as well, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think the only thing holding back the growth of the tech sector is available talent. And obviously, the technology itself is changing every day. The sort of pace of what's available uh, is quite incredible. And, and Microsoft, um, who I work closely with, they have this concept of a citizen developer. It's becoming even easier for just the, the normal sort of um, person on the street to be able to take technology and adapt it to address some of the business challenges and problems that we that we face. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about sort of how they've been struck. Maybe they've been working in the hospitality sector. How could they move into tech um, and use some of the tech skills? What skills do they have that, um, especially if you've got creative skills and problem-solving skills, because uh, you don't need to be deeply technical to work in the tech sector. Mm. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's a, it's a great opportunity to, to launch your career in a different direction in an area that's growing at the moment. And, of course, you, um, I'm right in saying, uh, Carleen, um, do correct me if I'm wrong, you made your first foray into the business world at just the age of 17, I think I'm correct in saying. And since then, you spent a long time within the uh, the software industry working for some huge names, the likes of IBM included there. Um, but what was it that sort of inspired you to go in alone, having accumulated some experience with bigger sort of software businesses? So I guess it was, uh, 10 years ago, I started Cloud9 Insight. And at the time, cloud technology was just really starting to take off. And so there's many SMEs out there who don't have IT departments. But the great thing about cloud technology is that you can you can use this cloud technology and really use it to scale your business. And this is the exact same technology that the likes of, say, Metro Bank uh, are using can be used by even startups at a, a really affordable price. And I think it really, especially at this time when you're talking to um, when you're talking to people who are working corporates and you're used to sort of normally going and meeting them in these beautiful glass buildings and it's very impressive. Well, frankly, everyone's now working, no matter whether you're at corporate or an SME, you're all working from your your home offices or your the side of your bedroom. Um, and so it really sort of levels the playing field. And that's what I love about sort of technology that I work with is. It really levels the playing fields between what it is that an SME can do and even a startup uh, right the way through to sort of being able to compete against the corporates. And I think customers now are sort of accept that actually being niche and being really good at something is actually a good thing. Mm. Uh, And so using technology, you can uh, really compete against uh, any of of the bigger competitors and possibly even better. And is there any sort of, person or maybe even product or thing within the sector that you kind of looked up to and being inspired by on your journey throughout this? Well, certainly having started my journey at IBM, they've made a very significant impression on me and the fact that the way that they invested in me uh, and invest in their team as a whole. And so uh, probably in any one year, I was very privileged to have about sort of seven or eight weeks of training, uh, in fact, early in my career. 
Uh, and that's definitely stood me in good stead. And I think that organizations need to be more um, sort of focused on employees, investing in employees, because if you can increase their value to your business, then mm. that is going to definitely sort of give you more skills and opportunity to, to go in new places. Uh, and I don't think in, enough organizations are doing that. There's more focus on share price and shareholder value. And if they're equity back, often they overlook because they're looking at short-term gains of selling the business. They overlook investing in existing talent. And I think especially the younger generation with these COVID times, they they're potentially might be overlooked. Uh, and I think we need to do more in investing in not just our current teams, but in new talent coming in and, and also investing in leadership skills. Mm. Uh, and I think there's going to be a growing trend of entrepreneurship in organizations. Uh, and hopefully more entrepreneurs being inspired. And I think the UK is a, a, an amazing place where people can uh, quite easily set up a, a start a business. So it's, it's great to be able to sort of support those young leaders of the future. And just for those young leaders of the future, a few of them at this moment in time may well be downhearted because they're looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the economy. A lot of youngsters are saying that I may never have my dream job because of what's going on. So just for those people out there that may be um, a little bit sort of downbeat at the moment, what is your message to those young entrepreneurs of the future to really pick them up and get them on the road to success? So I think what what I do in my business actually is I encourage all of my team, even if they're sort of young or older, to write a 10-year future CV. And it's often you can be more creative if you look out into the future. But sit down and, and take away sort of any self-limiting beliefs that you might have and just put down on paper sort of where would you want to be. And if you find that hard from a career perspective, then maybe start with your personal life sort of. Do you want to own a property? Do you do you want to be living in a particular place? Uh, what what might your lifestyle look like? And then think about that from a sort of career perspective. And probably spend one of the most important things to do is to spend some time thinking about your purpose and mm. uh, what is it that you're passionate about. And that way you'll be happy. Um, and then just make sure that you're sharing your dreams and never give up on them. Uh, and look to try and identify companies that share the the sort of purpose that you have um, and they will exactly the sort of organizations that will be quite happy to invest in the skills that you need to achieve your dreams and ambition. I really do like the idea of that 10-year future CV plan and um, it leads me very nicely on to my next question actually Carleen and it might seem a little bit mean this one but if you could go back 10 years to when you first started Cloud9 Insight armed with the knowledge that you have now is there anything that you would do differently or would you just embrace that journey that you've been on? You know what's a great question? Actually, I had an interesting start in my business because I almost immediately went and moved to the Alps, actually, for where I lived for four years, and I ran my business remotely. And, and I think that was an incredible opportunity. But I think I, after I came back uh, in the early years, I then started working with uh, apprentices, and I would have. I think that I probably would have done more to. To, to do more early on in my business in working with apprentices because they they gave me an incredible amount of energy, their their drive and enthusiasm. Um, and but apart from that, I think that um, the other part of my journey was sort of thinking about what market I was going to work with. So I'm really pleased that I worked chose to work with SMEs because the rest of my life mm. I've always worked with in and for enterprise sort of size corporates. Uh, I just love the energy of the the SME market of their sort of 
their passion and entrepreneurship and the, because at the end of the day it's their business and um, they they need it to survive to sustain uh, all of their sort of job opportunities that they have and that they can create and and that is is really exciting place to work. And industry is going to have to embrace MSMEs and apprentices more so than ever now with the economic impact of COVID-19, because it is these youngsters that are ultimately going to be the future of the sector. That is absolutely right. And um, I would like to talk about the future in just a little bit more depth, Carleen, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. Because um, given the Prime Minister's announcement very recently, um, we know that we're going to be living under the new normal at least until the end of March, perhaps, um, until we have a vaccine or a working cure by then for the uh, the coronavirus. Coronavirus. Um, but over the course of the next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Cloud9 Insight and Vantage Academy? And where do you really see yourselves being this time next year? So for a lot of organisations in a recession, the first thing they try to do is cut costs. And often the first place they cut costs is actually in marketing. And so what we're doing is we're launching a podcasting series around marketing and to really try and inspire SMEs as what can they do to sort of grow their business because I'm sure this recession will definitely be lasting for a few more quarters. So, but coming out of that, you need to have a sort of pipeline. You need to have a brand awareness. Uh, you need to have some products that you can support and offer out into the marketplace. So I'm looking to, to support uh, SMEs out there and also young talent to sort of have the skills, particularly digital marketing skills out there so they can support the economy as it picks up um, I'm sure those sort of skills will be more in demand and to sort of raise awareness of the sort of things that uh, SMEs could be doing to sort of put themselves in a better place. Because I, I, in my opinion, marketing should be the last thing that's cut. And if you look at some of the bigger corporates who are definitely um, have got cash in the bank, they're increasing their marketing spend mm. this time. So we're looking to try and help SMEs uh, to identify some cost-effective low-hanging fruit of things they can do that's sustainable to carry them through this recession but hopefully grow out the other side and potentially having innovated their business and on a technology platform that will sustain their growth as they start to scale because it is it is just for a period of time and we will get through the but you need mm. to sort of be thinking organizations need to be thinking about the future and how they're going to, to grow their business um, and keep hold of talent so part of that is about making sure you're employee engagement is the best it can be so that um that when when people start hiring again and the economy does pick up that that you don't suddenly lose everyone because you haven't really looked after them and they've uh you've abandoned them during this time so that for me is also going to be quite important in making sure the culture of the business is is very strong and that we have a team that feel um very well supported because often people in their homes they might be living with people who who've lost partners, who've lost their job. There's a huge financial stress on households. Uh, if you've got people who are being homeschooled, that's not an easy thing either. So there's a lot that employers can do to support the anxiety and stress and well-being of their employees. Uh, and it's not just about sort of making sure they do perform. Uh, I think you need to look at the bigger picture as well. 
It's an amazing and, quite frankly, a critical mission that you have, Carleen, simply because you're absolutely right. SMEs are incredibly inspiring with their entrepreneurship, but also they're forming the backbone of the year with the economy in this country. And they're so, so crucial to keeping the nation running. Absolutely. Um, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on how things are going within the industry over the course of the next few months. And just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto the programme to join us today, I do think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next 12 months months and have you back on the show just to see how things are coming along and we can sort of assess how far we've come as a nation since then. It'll be a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. I thoroughly welcome that opportunity. It's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you on today, yeah, Carleen. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that we'll be up and out of this uh, pandemic before too long. Indeed. Thank you. It was a pleasure to welcome Carleen Jackson onto today's programme. And I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is a politician who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite Despite being blind from birth, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during the latter's premiership and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. That interview will be coming up shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same 
products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in, 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.